Welcome to Sex Ed with DB. I'm your host, DB. Let's get into it. Welcome back to the podcast. If you love and support the work that we do, head to www.sexedwithdb.com and buy some of our hot new merch. Follow us on Instagram at sexedwithdbpodcast. And if you want to advertise with us, shoot us an email at sexedwithdb at gmail.com. Today we have on the awesome Jessica Diggs. Jessica is an LA-based midwife, doula, and educator who works with Doula Trainings International. She began her journey as a birth worker in 2012. The trainings, her mentors, and ultimately her first birth as a doula honed her interest in reproductive justice through doula trainings, childbirth education, and holistic practices. Jessica is honored to be a black midwife and to join other reproductive health advocates with a common goal, to provide safe, satisfying, and autonomous experiences for all people. Here I am with Jessica. Have you ever heard of Smile Makers? This vibrator brand was created to bring our pleasure products out of the sex shops and into the open. Never sold in adult stores, you can find their vibrators in retailers like Free People, Revolve, Saks Fifth Avenue, and more, as well as online. The design of their vibrators is very unique and elegant. Each of their vibrators was designed for a specific stimulation of the anatomy of the vulva. Focus stimulation on the clitoral glands as well as the G-spot. Check them out at www.smilemakerscollection.com and redeem your free bottle of generous gel lubricant with any purchase above 50 US dollars with my special coupon, SexEdDB. Clonawilly and Clonapussy kits allow you to make the most personalized sex toys on the planet. Clonawilly is the original DIY dildo kit and Clona Pussy is the original DIY pocket pussy. They're fun to make, sex positive, and completely body safe. Use promo code SEXED20 for 20% off your purchase at www.clonawilly.com. Follow them on IG, at clonawillykit. Welcome, Jessica, to the podcast. How's it going today? Going well. Yeah. Lovely Saturday. I know. Yeah. It's real. I don't know. You, you live in LA, is that right? Yes, what's I'm the in weather, Los Angeles. What's the weather there like today? Um, it's actually pretty sunny today. I haven't. I've been outside early, and it was still chilly, but it's pretty sunny. The last few days has been raining, which is weird for us. Mm, um, so which it's is nice good. to be California's back to normal. In that drought, so that's great. But <laughs> yeah, we all need some so sunshine. needed, but still so weird. <laughs> yes, exactly. LA is not known for their rain. Um, well, amazing. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Um, let's get started by you sharing. Uh, with our listeners, your name, your pronouns, um, and your job title. Yeah. So I'm Jessica Diggs. My pronouns are she and her. Um, I'm an LA-based midwife, doula, childbirth educator, and then the lead educator for DTI, or Doula's Training International. Incredible. And what is Doula Trainings International, or DTI, um, and what do you do there um, in your role? Yeah, so DTI is a educational and professional um, community organization. Um, we train doulas, we train childbirth educators, um, and we 
um, have built a platform and a movement around social justice, um, radical support, autonomy, collaboration within doula work and birth work, but also beyond that um, in all of reproductive health. Awesome. That is incredible. And I'm so in support of everything that you just said and you're doing. So that's amazing. Um, so what is, what's your per- particular background, I guess? Um, and how did you decide to kind of take the path to become a midwife doula? Um, and could you kind of talk about the differences between the capabilities and kind of the roles of midwives and doula, uh, doulas who aren't both? Yeah, yeah. Um, So I started actually really young. I was 19 when I heard the word doula. Um, So I became a doula first. Um, It's been about eight years now. I got into the work from a educational standpoint. I don't have children on my own. And most people tend to come into this work after their own birthing experiences, whether they were great or not so great. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't have a birth experience and I was actively trying not to get pregnant at 19 in the middle of college. So my kind of intro to this work was from a big overarching question of why don't we know more about our bodies? Um, I had so many girlfriends always asking, you know, sexual health, reproductive health, what's this bump on my ass? Am I pregnant? Am I not pregnant? Mm -hmm. And it blew my mind that no one knew anything about their bodies. Um, And so I started in a women's health information center, um, trying to answer those questions, staying up on the latest public health and evidence-based research. And in that space, I learned about what doulas did and how Um, as a doula, they are typically the supportive person, um, providing educational support, informational support, making sure people understand their options, um, helping families, the birthing person and their partners, um, find comfort and, uh, process their emotions that come up throughout the pregnancy and the birth, um, and working as an advocate in the spaces of birth, whether it's at a hospital or at home. Um, or birth center. So I fell in love with that role, um, knew I wanted an active voice um, within that space and knew I wanted to be an educator around just reproductive health. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I finished school and kind of wanted to be an OB from the standpoint of I wanted to actually be an active option for people, someone who can actually give them good care, um, uh, informational support, informed consent, and like give them good quality, compassionate care. Whereas they didn't have to go in and just ask for it. If I was just like their OB, um, I grew from that and decided I didn't actually want to be an OB, but Mm -hmm. I really more so aligned with being a midwife. And when I moved to California six years ago, just uh, legally and legislation rise, I was that opportunity presented itself. Um, I'm originally from North Carolina and just the laws there are a lot different. Mm. And so being a midwife was not as accessible in the capacities that I wanted to work as a midwife um, in North Carolina versus in California. Gotcha. And what's like the education like to become um, both uh, a midwife and a doula, I guess, respectively? Like what are each of those education uh, pathways like? Yeah, so I would say a a midwife is a medical professional. So I have all of the legal and liability responsibilities to keep the birthing person and the baby safe throughout pregnancy and after birth. So I'm delivering the baby. I'm administering uh, drugs if needed. Um, I'm making diagnoses. I'm, you know, uh, 
fixing complications. Mm-hmm. The doula is going to be more of a supportive role. And so they aren't doing any medical things. Um, however, they are building trust and rapport with clients and helping them navigating the birth space, but not from a medical keep them safe standpoint. Gotcha. Um, so with schooling, midwifery school is usually three to five years, depending on the route and the school you take. And that includes years and tons of hours of clinical uh, uh, care. So meaning you have to go to a bunch of births and catch a bunch of babies before mm-hmm. you actually can legally do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as a doula, most trainings usually include three to four in- days in person. And then what's different about DTI, which most other trainers don't include, is that we also have about a year-long worth of mentorship and um, support and follow-up and field work that comes with uh, that comes beyond those four days of training. Gotcha. And I'm sure that's extremely beneficial to those who are training to be doulas to not only have, you know, four days of training, but a whole year's worth of kind of experiences. Yes. Yes. I, I, that was one of the things that drew me to DTI is I hadn't met some of those doulas before I was involved with DTI. And I was like, you just seem so much more prepared than some of the other newer doulas I'm meeting. Um, and part of that is because the reading uh, requirements, the field work that's built out and laid out for these doulas to accomplish. And then the overall curriculum is so much, um, I always was like jealous of them. Like it's so better to prepare them for like this real work mm-hmm. that other curriculums didn't have and including my own when I first, um, became a doula. Totally. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, let's go over a little bit of the history of doulas, um, and how birth became more medicalized with doctors and hospitals over time. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah. So, uh, it's, we have to break it down to like America because doulas in, in, in most capacities have exist. Um, in many different cultures, you usually wouldn't have a formal doula quote unquote, um, like identify as that title, but there's always someone in each like family or community that kind of assumes that role, Mm -hmm. um, and has been for forever. So especially in like black and brown communities, there's always an auntie or this removed family member, but like is always at the cookout and always at the, always at the dinners who would serve in that role. Who's very familiar with birth, knows how to navigate it. Yeah. Yes. So yeah, you will have someone who's a nurturer and elder in a community who would serve in this role. Mm -hmm. Um, unfortunately with how we tend to live now where we're quite removed from our family structures, um, or just like historically, I would say like the seventies and eighties, like the structure of birth was so broken and fragmented, especially for people of color that, that, that generation right before us didn't have great experiences themselves. So don't actually know how to add to ours. Um, so doulas kind of came into the scene. I would say around the sixties and seventies where it was more of a peer like structure or a slightly elder, but not necessarily related to you or in your family unit, um, who comes in and serves to help you navigate and normalize the birthing process. Um, midwives, on the other hand, 
we have a, a horrible past uh, in our country, but it's not unlike any other experience as a person of color, um, mm. where we were taking care of everybody's babies, black, white, brown. We were delivering everyone's babies. And then when white people realize, oh, you can uh, monetize birth because everyone's going to always keep having babies no matter what's happening in the world, um, they pretty much defamed and criminalized um, black and brown midwives until the point where they were persecuting them um, and remove them from the center of care and remove, honestly, the birthing person from the center of care when you have uh, monetized, you know, this whole event. Um, and so now we have a sh less midwives. We have less, even less midwives of color. Um, and it's just a lack of accessibility to that. And that's really contributed to how medicalized our system is. Mm. Um, when you don't have people who have normalized birth, who have been and seen only normal and know how to correct even the smaller things that can go wrong, but versus seeing it as a ticking time bomb or needing to add interventions because that at, that makes the cost go up mm. adds more money to everyone's pockets. Right. Um, birth has very much shifted because it moved into the hospitals, which is a business at the end of the day. Mm, yes. And do you like, I'm assuming you all kind of really integrate this information in your trainings at DTI. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So every piece of our curriculum has a social justice, social lens uh, added to it. So from just language and family structure, like uh, for our LGBTQ community, like every example doesn't include Sam and Bob, it can include Sam and Sue, mm -hmm. you know, or Sally and Sue. So we, from that piece, but also even when we're talking about who's giving birth and where are we giving birth, we also need to say, let's take a step back because that, that recommendation is going to be different for a black and brown family mm -hmm. or a black and brown doula. You know, um, so yes, everything about our curriculum integrates some aspect of a social justice lens. Gotcha. Amazing. Um, what would you say some common misconceptions are about doulas that you want to dispel as someone who is a doula, who trains doulas and, you know, has the curriculum and uh, uses that to educate folks? What, what are some of those myths that you want to really, like, say that really here and now that does not exist? <laughs> Um, I will say doulas don't only support hospital births, I mean, home births, sorry. I'm going to take that back, actually. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, I would say doulas do not only support home births and out-of-hospital births. Like, we are equally supportive of hospital births. Um, I would say 98% of my doula practice is in a hospital setting. Um, and most of us want to be there to help you navigate that. Um, doulas also don't only support unmedicated births. Um, I've been hired to support parents who know they're going to get an epidural or know they're having a scheduled C-section. Mm -hmm. um, the doula, from the educational standpoint, from the emotional standpoint, even some of the physical standpoint, can still help you navigate a birth with an epidural, an induction, and a scheduled C-section. Um, the other one I would say is doulas do not are not just hired to the form of advocacy does not look like arguing with your care providers, mm. your OB and your midwife. Um, for me, advocacy looks like 
Uh, I know your preferences. I know which interventions will start to stack odds against your preference. Let's help you make best decisions given all of your options so we can stack odds in favor of what you're wanting. And I can help facilitate conversation with your provider in hopes of getting those things. Mm -hmm. But if part of my role is to create a common atmosphere to provide comfort, uh, add intention, um, in a sense, from just like uh, arguing your preferences is not how I usually do that. Right Now, if someone's doing something against your will, against your consent, I happily will stand up for you. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not why I'm usually just hired, you know? Right. Um, so I'm not going to let, like, just blatant human rights be violated. But I also am not just coming in defensive. Right. That's um, not the primary concern of, like, that's not central to, like, everything that you're doing. Yes. Yes, exactly. And then part of that is like, let's not even be here. If we have to go in fighting as much as we can control, let's just not be at this particular place. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we know we're going to be up against something like that, for the most part, we can control that. And then for some people, that's not the case with insurance and just the way the system works. Um, but yeah, that's not my central role. Uh, and then I'll say, lastly, we don't overshadow or like, um, take over a partner's role. Mm. Um, if anything, doulas enhance the partner's role as much as they are comfortable being present and supportive and active and engaged at the birth. Um, everyone knows their partner better than most other people. And we want to be realistic about your partner's strengths. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a doula, I would play up on their strengths because they typically know the birthing person better than anyone else. Right. Um, so I want to play up on that versus overshadowing it. Yeah. Could you walk us through maybe like kind of from when a potential, you know, pregnant person comes into DTI and says, I want, you know, potentially like maybe they're seeking options or maybe they end up deciding that they want to work with a doula. What could it look like from month zero to when they deliver and afterwards um, in terms of some of the um, some of the conversations that you might be having with them, some of the things you may be doing for them, um, kind of walk us through maybe like the process. I know it's a, that's a, a very complex <laughs> question, but maybe kind of like a, a quick short version. Yeah, well, um, luckily DTI doulas are often trained as full spectrum doulas. So from fertility questions to actually conceiving, we can help everyone navigate that. Um, once they're pregnant, um, typically they're going to meet with a doula usually two to three times in the pregnancy to build rapport, to understand their options for book references, class recommendations, nutrition, all of that good stuff, and to have a game plan for the birth. Um, we typically join them for the birth, uh, when they're closer to active labor, but there's a lot of communication via the phone before then. Mm-hmm. Um, often I'll join them at home. I check in with the partner or any family support people that are there, um, asking what's been working, what's not working, settle into that space, uh, review what they're hoping for, for this birth and mm-hmm. support them in that. Um, I help them know when to go to their birthplace, whether it's the hospital or the birth center. And if it's a home birth, helping them navigate when to call the midwives over. 
Um, then they get to the, their birthplace. We continue laboring. If their plans change out of necessity or out of just a uh, choice, then we navigate whatever changes or comes up in that labor. Um, baby is born, hopefully healthy and fine. I help initiate lactation if they're choosing to breast or chest feed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I peace out and go home <laughs> after that kid is born and check in with them typically in the first few 48 hours. And then I see them back at their home, um, within that first week or two, just, just to make sure they're transitioning into being parents. Well, mm-hmm. um, I'm available via text and email after that. I'm also trained as a postpartum doula, so I can even come in into that role, which most people don't realize there's a birth doula and there's a postpartum doula. Mm -hmm. And so as a postpartum doula, I can come in and make some meals, help with infant feeding, help with um, healing for the person proudum parent like how is their bottom doing how is their incision doing how are their how are their nipples mm-hmm. um and then give partners you know tools and tips to soothe their baby or support their partner um so that's kind of the full yeah. role of the tool that's amazing yeah uh, and could you just make a clarification like the difference between a full spectrum doula and a non-full spectrum doula uh what what are the differences yeah there? So a full-spectrum doula, as we define it today, is you specialize in birth, postpartum, and then reproductive um, events. So loss, abortion, birth control, fertility, and cycle awareness. Um, That's the totality of our full-spectrum training. Others usually is some aspect of birth, postpartum, and then um, loss, abortion um, are the two main focuses. So if that if that pregnancy didn't quite continue on into a viable pregnancy and that person hired us and then went through a miscarriage, we can support them through that. Or if they know they don't want to be pregnant and they want to have an abortion, we are trained to support them um, through that from choices, options, and then the different um, ways to heal afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, and then birth, birth control options, no matter what their family structure is looking like. But after they've had this baby, talking them through like um, spacing out their pregnancies if they don't want to be pregnant very soon and understanding what the cycle looks like um, after they've um, had a baby or while they're breastfeeding or chest feeding because that's a lot different and we get a lot of accidental pregnancies that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we are trained in all of that to fully support the reproductive period. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because in public health school, something that we've talked about is that like, you know, when folks are uh, breast or chest feeding, it's a lot less likely that they would become pregnant, but it's definitely not foolproof. Exactly. Exactly. And so for those folks that we just blankly said that it's a lot less likely we'd have a lot of children mm-hmm. born to parents who don't necessarily or I mean, not necessarily born, but a lot of children conceived to parents who necessarily don't want to be pregnant yet. Right. Um, so we talk about how to gauge fertility in that window where their cycles are just off because they're lactating. Mm-hmm. Um, and for us as a culture, we typically don't do all the steps of that um, 
that uh, lamb method, essentially trying to stop the period, stop ovulation when you're lactating. And we don't do all the steps to actually achieve that mm-hmm. um, because we introduce a bottle, we separate from our babies typically, um, we don't sleep in the same bed with them. So like a lot of the things that worked for those who utilize that method as a form of birth control, we don't usually do. Ah, okay. That makes sense. So the efficacy goes down. Yes. That's really good to know. Um, okay. So I would love to talk a little bit about, um, health disparities and kind of taking this, you know, social justice lens that you mentioned about how your work, um, includes also bringing awareness to health disparities that are based on race and kind of other identities. Um, could you all, Uh, Or could you talk about kind of uh, black maternal mortality and other disparities in birth outcomes that maybe you all discuss in your trainings? Yeah, so I'm sure people might know this stat by now. Um, It's gotten a lot of publicity in the last three to four years, which is lovely. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, black women are three to four times more likely to die in childbirth or right after childbirth compared to white women in our country. Um, Our maternity rate as a whole, but specifically for black women, has gone up over the last few decades in comparison to other industrialized countries where it's going down. Um, And just simply, uh, our um, just systematic... Our experience with systematic racism is what's contributing to that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that stat does not really change no matter socioeconomic background. So we've had people in our news like Serena Williams and um, uh, what's, what's the chick from the Cosby show? The little girl, Rudy. Oh, yes. Keisha. Uh, I can't think of her actual name. Um, but there's <laughs> I don't a lot know her name either. Celebrities I just know her as Rudy. <laughs> I know. There's been a lot of celebrities out there who clearly socioeconomic um, are on the higher end of socioeconomic statuses and are still being affected by um, uh, this morbidity and mortality rate. Mm -hmm. So it is largely linked to racism and the experience of racism in pregnancy, but also during childbirth and shortly after, um, meaning... Um, in pregnancy, the stress of just being a black person and then growing a person, um, just contributes to the likelihood of some life-threatening illnesses and complications. Um, and then in childbirth, not been taken seriously when things are going wrong, um, not feeling heard, not feeling seen or being blatantly ignored regarding pain or discomfort or, um, anything that's not normal and being kind of dismissed and that escalating into a complication that could have been prevented. Mm. Um, and that leads to literally death or some uh, severe mor- morbidity issues. So it's scary. It's also crazy. Like it's one of those things that's like a bit of a mind fuck for myself. Cause it's like, I'm a black woman. I know more than the average person around childbirth and I right. still can't prevent this from being a part of my pregnancy journey. Mm. And it's like crazy. Um, yeah. Yeah. So 
it's one of those things that's like, shit, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's super fucked um, up, definitely. And yeah. it's really wild. Yeah. I mean, just the fact that, like you said, in the past three to four years, there has been so much more attention on it. But the fact that, like, the numbers haven't really necessarily changed. I mean, um, there's a yes. class There's a class that I'm taking that's called Reducing Maternal uh, Mortality at, at Columbia right now. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, one of the states that we were focusing on was Louisiana and just, like, how... Uh, start mm-hmm. the differences are there compared to a state like California where in California the numbers have actually um, improved and that's due to a lot of data collection and a lot of money that's focused on programs to train people to have you know anti-racism trainings and there's a lot of things that yeah. should be done nationally and internationally of course that are just not being done to uh, help yes. fix this issue. Yeah, I mean, I'm from the South, so I can say this with great pride, but like the 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 um, conviction that racism contributes to these things is not there. It's like, oh, we just sweep it under the rug. We don't want to talk about it. Right. Um, And so integrating uh, conversations around anti-racism and um, these health disparities and putting it back onto the system versus onto the individuals Mm -hmm. is very hard to shift the mindset um, in those states. Um, No one wants to take the blame. And so it's really, it's been interesting to see the conversation shift and it almost has to be from a grassroots standpoint versus a um, state or federal standpoint because those levels of legislation don't want to take the responsibility of like, oh, we actually contribute to that. Even right now with COVID, Right. Um, a doctor, uh, Farsi and, um, our president, mm-hmm. uh, were stated about how African-Americans are being disproportionately affected by COVID. Um, and, right. or I would say more deaths by COVID and, um, like no one wants to actually say why right. <laughs> it's just like, Oh, it's just this data exists. Right. As if and there's some say, inherent like, <laughs> like biological trait yeah. that like black people are more, you know, incapable of fighting off the virus or like some bullshit like that when really it's exactly. like systemic and systematic racism that's contributing to these outcomes. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Like if you look at the places, it was like Milwaukee and um, Detroit, I want to say, um, it was like these places where it's like, yes, they're heavily known for racism. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't even have huge black communities. Well, Detroit does, but Milwaukee doesn't have a huge black community, but it ha- like it's heavily known for its racism and, um, and the effects of that. And, you know, all of the different yes. things that come along with that with, you know, obviously if folks aren't going to have access to resources like, you know, PPE or access to doctors mm-hmm. or access to food, like there are so many things um, that yes. people need to be healthy, especially during a pandemic. Um, and if they yep. don't have access to those, um, then of course they're going to be disproportionately negatively impacted. Yes. I mean, even with those who are, I would say specifically for birth, for those who do have all the same levels of access, we're still seeing staggering numbers right. against right. them. And it boils down to indirect, implicit, um, and explicit, um, biases in labor. And it's insane. Absolutely. Um, so I will say with, with DTI, um, 
for those marginalized groups, not just black women, um, but we do have a big focus on trans and non-binary um, birthing people as well, because their stats are just as scary mm-hmm. um, and just as embarrassing as a country. It's like, it's sad that this country has these embarrassing statistics around uh, mortality rates and birth. Right. Um, so for that community as well, we do see some more, I would say more, um, morbidity. So, um, negative outcomes with birth versus death, um, in terms of just stats, but their overall experiences in pregnancy are often just steeped in microaggression after microaggression after mis, um, um, gendering them to, mm-hmm. you know, it's just a lot of misconceptions, misunderstandings and lack of learning and compassion, um, for our pregnant trans folks. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, we have two initiatives going on at DTI because ultimately it's like, yes, we can attempt to fix the system, but honestly, it kind of needs to just burn down. Um, Rebuilt. This is like like a whole whole new thing. Right. But we do know with the stats from public health um, organizations and just the data collected is that representation makes a world of a difference. Mm -hmm. Um, So making sure we have access to or making sure those communities have access to these trainings so that they can go back and serve their own communities Um, because where we are seeing the positive outcomes and the great numbers are from black midwives and black OBs um, and trans and non-binary birth workers who are serving these communities and can meet the needs on such a different level than someone who doesn't identify as so. Um, and the, the stress reduction in pregnancy, the trust in childbirth, the feeling seen in the after the postpartum period makes a world of a difference to actually getting the care that they need mm-hmm. um, and ha- helping them advocate for themselves within a system that often doesn't see them. Um, this so is that's a perfect, how DCI showed up. Oh, this is a perfect segue to our last question, which is uh, the benefits. You already kind of named some of them, but if you could kind of go through like, what are the, the benefits of doulas for pregnant people um, and also if someone, like I said before, if they think that they may want to use a doula for their pregnancy and birth, cause they're listening to this episode and they're like, wow, that sounds amazing. I want to see if I could maybe mm-hmm. use a doula. Um, where would you kind of recommend they go first in terms of how to navigate that on DTI's website or Instagram or wherever? Yeah. So I was a big benefits to having, um, a doula is going to be continuity of care, you're going to build rapport with this person while in your pregnancy, have them at the birth, and then have them in the postpartum period. And that can be one doula or some doulas working collective so that you are fully supported with, you know, an array of different um, people, but it's a small group of people that are for your interests and your interests only. Mm -hmm. Um, So they're not employed by your hospital. They're not employed by your provider. They're typically by you and so that's just a a breath of fresh air to know that this advocate is for me and for me alone Mm -hmm. um so that presence that continuity of care because your doctor your nurse your midwife is not at the birth for a long like the whole time like at all doctors show up at the very end so even if you like them they're not there but maybe 
45 minutes tops. Mm-hmm. Um, and your doula is going to be the person who's normalizing things at home once you get to your birthplace and then beyond that. Um, they also reduce the incidences of unnecessary interventions, mostly from a standpoint of education and making sure you understand how these different interventions will play on to your birth. Mm-hmm. Um, but also from things like epidurals and inductions and cesareans, um, helping you navigate labor in the beginning to shorten the amount of time, ideally, um, that you're in a hospital setting um, will help reduce the need for those things and then the cascade of unnecessary interventions. Mm-hmm. As much that is normal, like they, they aren't going to guarantee a certain outcome because some That's of them impossible. might be witches, but most of them aren't, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like we can't guarantee that, but we can help navigate what is normal and then also help you understand when normal does segue to abnormal. And we do need that help and how to facilitate conversation. So it's less scary in those incidences where yes, we do need that cesarean birth and it can be beautiful and uh, a non-traumatic experience having had a doula explain normalize and work with your providers um, when things do segue. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and yeah. Where, yeah, where could people get started if they're interested in finding out more? Yeah. So, I mean, DTI on our website, we do have a like doula locator um, feature for our uh, DTI doula. So you can always put in like your zip code or city and state there. Um, beyond that Instagram, <laughs> you can always uh, follow the hashtag like doulas or doula life. Um, and or just Google doulas in your area. If you're wanting a specific doula, like a black doula, Google black doula in insert whatever city you're in um, and then start interviewing them. Um, I would say interview, you know, more than two to three, just because we are all usually really great people come into this line of work. So it gets real confusing if you interview too many. Um, but yeah, interview a couple people, send a couple emails, go to their website, see who fits, who feels good. If you are a person of color or um, in the LGBTQ community, also look at just representations on their Instagram and on their website. Like, do you see yourself in their care and in their pictures? And mm-hmm. if no, that's probably not a good fit for you. Um, they're probably going to serve you fine, but I guarantee you there are people in your area who will identify similar to you um, or be a great ally. And that's going to come across in their uh, website and then their Instagram feed. So look for those things because that type of rapport is so invaluable in such an intimate setting like birth and the postpartum period. Oh, that was amazing. Jessica, thank you so, so much for being on here. It has been such a pleasure. Um, I do have one more question Um, for folks who want to become doulas. What would you recommend for them? Um, we would happily love to be a part of your journey to being a doula. Um, you can always go to wearedti.com and navigate our website to either take an in-person full spectrum training, um, or an online full spectrum training. If one is not in your area, um, we love, I personally love being a small part of the journey towards being a doula. And if you are a person of color um, or trans or non-binary person, we really, really, really want to be a safe space for you. Um, So we have the scholarships that are available online. 
um, fill that out and we would love to get you into a training. How do you like our new podcast logo and banner? Andrea Forgotch is the queer, fat, feminist artist behind this incredible artwork. We're absolutely loving the abstract, sexual goodness that she brings in all of her beautiful illustrations. So, whenever you need some art that is unapologetically there for you, go visit andreaforgotch.com. That's Andrea, F-O-R-G-A-C-S dot com to commission your own piece or download one of her illustrations in the shop. Creating a homemade dildo or a usable copy of your own penis is rapidly turning into the new standard in ultra-custom sex toys, thanks to Clonawilly. Clonawilly has been all about dick since 96 and brings you a DIY penis or vulva molding kit for your favorite sex toy or memento. Whether it be for a birthday, Hanukkah, or just because, Clonawilly is the perfect gift. Use promo code SEXED20 for 20% off your purchase at www.clonawilly.com. Here's your PSA about why masturbation is so amazing. Number one, it's safe. No one ever got pregnant or an STI when having sex with themselves. Number two, it's normal. Most people do it. Number three, it has actual health benefits. Besides making you feel like the best version of yourself by boosting self-esteem and creating a more body-positive outlook, masturbation is also correlated to better sexual functioning overall. And number four, it's an incredible learning experience to figure out what you like, with or without a partner along for the ride. This PSA has been brought to you by Sweet Vibes. Go to www.sweetvibe.toys and use promo code SEXWITHDB to get 15% off your first purchase. Follow them on Instagram, at Sweet Vibrations. Our creator, co-producer, sound engineer, and host is me, Danielle Bezalel, a.k.a. DB. Our co-producer and communications lead is Catherine Cohen. Our main logo and banner graphic were created by Andrea Forgotch. Our social media intern is Leslie Lopez. Our music theme is by Hook Sounds. Our ad music is by my stepdad, Bill Gant. Thank you so much to our featured guests, partners, and our listeners. If you're interested in advertising with us, email us at sexedwithdb at gmail.com. For more sex ed content, follow us on Insta at sexedwithdbpodcast. Tune in next time.